Good morning. Hey. Good morning. How's everyone doing today? Good. Well, we're going to be uh, continuing through Ephesians this morning. And uh, as we've done over the last several weeks, going through Ephesians 5 and now in Ephesians 6, we've been looking at the family. And what does God's word have to say about how we are to relate to one another as family? And that word family really means something different to every person. So when you mention family, some people have just really fond memories of their family. Maybe they think back when they were children growing up as a part of a family. Others have painful memories. Some people have scarring memories. Some people grew up um, even without a family. They don't really know what that word family is intended to mean. And so... I'm of the belief that I don't know that the, the harmful effects of the fall of man, the harmful effects of everything that happened in Genesis 3 when sin entered into the world, I don't know that the effects of that are seen as evidently anywhere else in the world as they are seen within the family. Because everyone has some level of, uh, of dysfunction in their family, right? I mean, to varying degrees, every family is dysfunctional. And if you, if you start to ask around, start to have conversations, we, we were having a small conversation at our MC just this past week talking about just how different families are dysfunctional and everybody's got dysfunction in their family to varying degrees. Every family is dysfunctional. And so you even see that, you even see that going back and looking at Scripture. If you go back and look at families all the way through history, there's multiple families you see. You can start out at the very beginning with Adam and Eve, Right? I mean, Adam and Eve, hey, you got, you got, there's one thing you're not supposed to do. Don't eat from this tree. Dysfunction happens. Eve tricks Adam into eating, and then they start blaming back and forth. They start pointing fingers. Things don't get much better from there. Uh, they have two sons. Uh, you've probably heard their names, Cain and Abel. Cain takes Abel out into a field and uh, kills him. First murder happens. I mean, this, this is like right off the bat. Like dysfunction in family, you keep going. Uh, if you've been reading your CBR journal over the last few weeks, we started that in 2019. We've been reading through the book of Genesis. So some of these, some of these stories, if you've been reading them, you probably start to uncover a few details that, um, that maybe we leave out of the kids' lessons over here. So like Noah and the ark, you know, that's, that's a cool story. You know, after that happens, Noah ends up basically plastered naked in his tent and then he ends up cursing his children because they, they say something to him about it. And it just gets uglier and uglier. Abraham's family, Abraham, we know Abraham, the guy that he was just so faithful to just go to a place that God had called him. He didn't know where he was going. Hey, along the way, Abraham basically prostitutes his wife out to the Egyptians so that they don't kill him. Okay, so dysfunction exists throughout history. And you can keep going. You can look at Lot's family who basically tried to give his daughters over to a bunch of people who were trying to kill him. You can look at Jacob's family. Jacob had 12 boys, right? Decides to buy the youngest one, Joseph, like a fancy coat. Like none of the other boys got a fancy coat. They didn't really like Joseph very much. So the other boys, his brothers, decide, let's just get rid of Joseph. They throw him in a pit and try to kill him. One of them eventually says, hey, instead of killing him, why don't we just sell him to these, uh, to these Egyptians as a, as a slave? Things really don't get better. Even, uh, even look at, at the family that Jesus grew up in. 
Jesus, when he was a boy, they, they go to the temple and they travel. And uh, Mary and Joseph somehow forget that the Son of God on their way home isn't really with them anymore. And so it's been a couple of days and they're like, hey, have you seen Jesus recently? And uh, no one's seen him. Oh, we left him back in Jerusalem. Let's, let's go back and get him. So dysfunction happens to varying degrees. It's happened throughout all of history. It happens in my family. It happens in your family. And so the question we're asking today is, what does God's word say about family? What does it say about the relationship? We've looked at the relationship between husbands and wives over the last couple of weeks. And today we're going to look at the relationships between parents and children. Because the reality is there are, there are two earthly relationships that are designed and intended to show us God's love, to show us what his relationship is like with his people. Those relationships are the relationship between a husband and a wife, and then the relationship between a parent and a child. And there is so much of God's relationship with his children that is reflected in those earthly relationships. So the the big idea this morning, kind of where we're going, is this idea. The gospel redeems, directs, and defines how we relate to our family. The gospel redeems, directs, and defines how we relate to our family. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you kind of where we're going before we even go there. But today's message, this is not intended to be just a list of helpful tips and tricks to make you a better parent, okay? So we're, we're not going to have like a, hey, here's the top six things that you can do as a dad or as a mom. You can go home and do these with your kids. This isn't about doing more things as a parent, or trying to work harder at being a better dad, or trying to work harder at being a better mom. This is about how the gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ, infiltrates our hearts and changes us so that we are able and empowered by the love of Christ that's alive inside of us to love others well. It's not a list of just things that we can do better. So understand that as we go into this. I'm going to read this passage one more time for us because it's short. Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, children... Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So really quick disclaimer here as we take a closer look at this passage. Verse 4 mentions fathers. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Um, that word fathers, it, 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 does, it, it literally means fathers. So if you dig into like the Greek, there's no like, oh, this really means parents. Um, although it's, it's culturally speaking, it would have addressed fathers. But really, this is sound advice for parents. Okay, so my, my point of telling you this is, is so that if you're a mom in the room, like, you don't get to just, like, sit back during the sermon and, you know, give that little glare and smirk at your husband the whole time. I, I know that we do that sometimes, kind of a little elbow nod, like, hey, are you listening? Talking to you, Dad. Um, at the same time, we've learned over the past couple of weeks about how the, the husband is the head of the family, just as Christ is the head of the church, and that the husband is to love his wife like Christ loves the church. And so at the, at the same time, while what I just said is true, at the same time, fathers in the room, I do want to talk to you specifically, and I do want you to, to hear me with an urgency because you are the head of your household. And so if you're going to ask me, um, hey, does this passage speak directly to fathers, or is this passage more, of a, more, of a, um, more intended for just parents in general, 
My answer is yes. Yes, fathers, you need to pay attention. Yes, moms, pay attention too. So anyway, moving into this. There's two parts. Uh, The first three verses deal uh, with children and how they relate to their parents. And then the last verse deals more directly with parents and fathers and how they relate to their children. So within the context of a Christian family, how are children to relate to their parents? That's kind of the question that, that we're answering here. How are children to relate to their parents? And the answer is actually pretty clear, and it's, it's one word, it's obedience. Obedience. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And he essentially lays out three grounds for obedience, three reasons why it is right, or three reasons that children should obey their parents. And uh, those three reasons are nature, the law, and the gospel. Nature, the law, and the gospel. We'll unpack those a little bit more moving into this. So nature He simply says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Okay, so he's essentially saying, it doesn't just depend on some special revelation from God to know that children should obey their parents. It's just a part of the natural law that God has written into human hearts. All civilizations essentially have recognized that the the importance of parents having an authority over their children is indispensable to a stable society. Like, society just doesn't work if parents don't have some type of authority over their children, right? And we, and we see this sometimes in, in just little, little microcosms. You know, you, you ever been to a restaurant, and, like, there's that family who, somewhere along the line, they just decided, like, we're just going to let our kids do whatever they want. So, you know, the little two-year-old Susie Q is just running around the restaurant naked, stabbing people with forks and throwing her poop on the wall. Like, we can all agree, wherever you are in the parenting spectrum of discipline, we can all agree that at some point, like, parents need a level of authority over their children. Parents need a level of authority over their children. And so one of Paul's first arguments is is pretty simple. He just says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. This is right. He goes on and he mentions the law, the fifth commandment. If you go back and look at the Ten Commandments, Honor your father and mother. That word honor, um, you can essentially replace it with acknowledging their God-given authority. And he says it's the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. And we have to interpret that promise as being generally true to a greater population, more so than individual terms. Okay, so some of the kids in the room are like, hey, I just figured out how I can live to be 99 years old. Like, just obey my parents, says right here in the Bible, that uh, that I'm going to live a long life. We have to recognize it as being generally true, because what Paul's doing here, he's actually quoting uh, Deuteronomy 5.16. Deuteronomy 5.16 says, Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long, that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So what's, what's promised here is not necessarily long life to each individual child that obeys their parents, but certainly, a, a, again, a healthy society is just inconceivable without, without this presence in their families, so if you want to, so what originally what God's saying to the Israelites, if you go back to Deuteronomy, is, hey, in order for you to survive as a nation, 
then we need to see this present in families. We need to see parents having authority over their children and children obeying their parents. In order for you to survive as a people group, it needs to be there. And so there's, there's kind of two questions that this may arouse. And those two questions are, one, is this command unconditional? So no matter what, are children always to obey their parents? And two, to whom is it really addressed? Um, because when, when you say children obey your parents, um, I'm, I'm a child. Uh, my mom and dad are here today, actually. Um, I'm also 35. Uh, so at, like, at one point, do, does this no longer, do I not have to do what mom and dad say anymore? Um, when does that transition kind of happen? So to whom is it addressed? What is meant by children? And is the command unconditional? So the, uh, the command is children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. And so there's, a, there's an implication here that if you were to obey in the Lord, that we don't obey in necessarily absolutely everything, but only what is compatible with our primary loyalty, which is to Jesus. So God is our ultimate father. God is our spiritual father. Ultimately, we are responsible to him. So whatever falls under the umbrella of Christ, we are to be obedient to our parents in. And again, the question, so what is meant by children? Well, the, the truth is that's in many ways going to be defined by culture because there are different cultures all over the world and uh, there's a different um, coming of age ages for each of those cultures. Sometimes it's in an age or a number. Sometimes it's a life event that may occur. So some people may be considered children until you reach the age of 18. Legally speaking, in the United States, you're an adult when you're 18. But if you're 18 and you're still living at mom and dad's house and they're still paying your bills and they're still taking care of you, are you, are you really an adult or is it just legally you're an adult? Some people say, hey, when you move out of your mom and dad's house and you pay your own bills, some people say when you get married. Some people might say when you have children of your own. So there's different cultures around the world who are going to define that differently. Again, a certain age, when you leave home, when you marry. But the truth is, we have to continue to honor our parents regardless of whether we have come of age or not. Continue to honor our parents. And that doesn't necessarily mean obey. So when that transition happens culturally, we continue to honor our parents. And so we've looked at um, how Paul has laid this out, how he said that, uh, that it's just right to obey your parents. We've looked at the law, where the law calls us to honor our mother and father. And then lastly, we're going to look at the gospel, how Christian children learn to obey with gladness. And I want us to, to look at Luke chapter 2, verse 51. Luke 2, verse 51. This is referring to Jesus as a boy. It says, And he went down with them, and he came to Nazareth, and was submissive to them. And that's a simple verse that you can, uh, you can read over it really quickly, Right? It's really easy to read through that one. It's, it's short, and it's like wrapping up that story. But I don't want to miss it, that the fact that Jesus was submissive to his earthly parents. So I've got a quote. This is from David Mathis, and I think we have it on the screen. You can follow along with me. He says this. He says, God submitted to man. The God child obeyed his mere 
human parents. And in doing so, he dignified the most basic and enduring of everyday relational dynamics in our modern age taught to despise the ideas of submission and obedience. The Son of God himself, worthy of limitless worship and praise, shadows our shallow conceptions of value and worth. Jesus' obedience to his parents challenges the insecurities in us that often make us averse to submit and obey. God himself, in human flesh, subjected himself to two average, ordinary, inexperienced parents in an obscure backwater town called Nazareth. Jesus obeyed his parents. Now, for for children in the room and and how you can look at this example that Jesus set, particularly for, for children in the room who are Christ followers, because now this Jesus that we read about who submitted himself far greater than you could ever imagine, this Jesus who obeyed his parents and submitted himself to them is now the same Jesus who is your Lord and Savior. And we should be anxious to do what pleases him. We should be anxious to follow in his footsteps, to look at the life that Jesus lived and seek to live a life that mirrors it and that resembles it. And submission is hard. Oftentimes, it's difficult to submit to someone because the truth is, we think we know better. And so if you have a boss at work who's telling you how to do your job, but you feel like you should do your job differently, it's really difficult for you to submit to your boss because in your head, you really think you know what you're doing. You know better. And as a teenager, a lot of times, we can feel the same way, right? Like, mom and dad, like, come on, you don't, you don't understand the school that I'm in. You don't understand, like, what kids do these days. You don't understand this. You don't understand that. I, I know better. And so it's difficult for children oftentimes to submit to the will of their parents because they really think they know better. But here, Jesus at age 12 teaches us an essential lesson that applies to any age. And that lesson is this, godly submission In whatever context, it doesn't stem from a lack of competency. You don't just submit to people because they're more competent about something than you are. Because we are never too smart, never too skilled, never too experienced or too spiritual for God-given submission. And we see that in the life of Jesus as Jesus, who created his mom and dad, submits to his mom and dad. So children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your mother and father. The first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. And so we're going to change gears a little bit so that the passage moves from talking about children to talking about parents. And Brad always gives me the really easy passages, you know, when you get to talk about things like parenting, because that's, you know, if anybody's got something figured out, you know, it's probably parenting. There's not a thousand different ways and different ideas that people have about parenting. But this morning, we just want to look at what God's Word says about parenting and see if we can apply it in our context and in our day. So verse 4 shifts gears. He starts talking about parents. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so it's interesting here when Paul outlines how parents should behave toward their children, it is not an exercise in authority that he recommends. It's actually restraint of their authority that he urges. 
restraint of their authority. He paints a picture of a self-controlled, gentle, patient educator. Now, this is, this is kind of stark contrast to the, the Roman culture that Paul would have been writing in. Okay, so Roman culture said that the father of a household had absolute control over his family and his children. Okay, like to the degree that if, if a baby's born and the dad just didn't like the way he looks, like they could kill it. If a son makes a dad mad, he could sell the son into slavery if he wanted to. He could enslave the son himself and make him go work in the fields. Like It was a culture where the, the, the son and the children of the household were at the absolute mercy of the father of the house. That's what the culture would have said. And so you can see kind of the stark contrast here where Paul's writing saying that the father needs to be a self-controlled, gentle, patient educator. That Christian fathers are to care for their families as God the Father cares for His. And again, this refers to mothers too. There are some translations that even use the term parents. And he starts with a negative instruction. He says, do not provoke your children to anger. Do not provoke your children to anger. So Paul recognizes just how, how delicate a child can be when he says do not provoke them to anger because parents can very easily misuse their authority. So we have an authority that's been given by God, but it's very easy as parents in our own sinfulness to misuse that authority in dealing with our children. And we do that in a lot of ways. Some of the more common ways we make irritating or unreasonable demands that don't allow for the inexperience and immaturity of children. Okay, I do this. I'm, I'm really bad about this. My oldest daughter, India, she lives in her own world. And so when, it's, when we're like running late and like we have to get dressed or something, well, I mean, I, I can give her pants and a shirt and say like, hey, put your pants and shirt on. And I'll go do something else because we're trying to get it out of the house. You know, I'm finishing making lunches or finishing getting myself ready or whatever. I'll come back, I promise you guys, 15 minutes later. She hasn't done a thing. She hasn't done a thing. And it's really easy for me, and, and on some level, like she's in kindergarten, she should have put her pants on by now, but it's really easy for me to just, to just get frustrated and to just allow anger to be the dominant emotion in that moment and not allow for her immaturity, not allow for her inexperience. It's easy for us as parents to be harsh and cruel with our children because we lose our temper and we had a bad day and we come home and we just take it out on our kids. We can be harsh and cruel. It's easy for us to even go to the other extreme and to show either favoritism to one child over another or to show overindulgence to our children. If we, if we never say no to our kids, it's easy to humiliate our children. I think we should be careful about stories that we tell about our kids around our kids. Because they, they listen. Like if I've learned anything about kids, like they are always listening. And they hear everything you say. And the last thing that we as parents want 
is to provoke our children to anger towards us because of the words that we use and the stories that we tell about them, the things that they hear us saying to other people about them. I think we should guard them very carefully. But it's easy to do. Sarcasm, ridicule, there are multiple parental attitudes that can provoke resentment and anger in our children. Colossians 3.21, Paul essentially reiterates what he says here in 3.21. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Lest they become discouraged. As parents, it is imperative that we do not discourage our children in the way that we talk to them and the way that we act towards them. And there is a place for, for discipline. There is a place for discipline. But it must not ever be arbitrary or unkind. Because almost nothing causes a, a child's personality to, to blossom. Nothing, char- nothing causes gifts to develop within a child like positive encouragement. Like believing that your parents love you and understand you. Parents' love for their children is expressed in helping them develop their full potential. We talked about that, about how a a husband's love for his wife is expressed in helping her develop her full potential. It's the same thing when you look at a parent's relationship with their children. Their love is expressed in that way. That everything that I do is is in, in part so that you can develop your full potential as a child and as a follower of Christ. And every child, this, this can also be, be difficult, but every child must be allowed to be himself. Because we, if, we have, if you have children in the room, you have just inherently some, some preconceived notions of, of what you want your child to be. So if you grew up playing sports, uh, you, might, you, might, you just can't wait for your kid to be old enough to be on the soccer team. And you just want your kid to play soccer. I'm not trying to pick on India this morning, but we signed India up for soccer. And we were excited because we get to go to, we get to, go to her soccer games. We get to see her play soccer. And she's going to make good friends on the soccer team. We had kind of ideas of what it was going to be like for her to be on a soccer team. Uh, she had ideas too. But the reality of it was she hated every second of it. And she, just, she would just go and stand in the field and just walk around. And then she'd just walk to the bench and sit down. And we, we did that for how many games? Six games? And um, it, was, it was terrible. And so we were able to, to say, uh, okay, India, you clearly don't enjoy soccer. We, we wanted you to enjoy soccer, but we're, that's okay. We're going we're gonna to find some other interests. Um, so our, our children are not always going to be who we desire for them to be. And we also have to understand that Every time that happens, every time they don't conform to what we want them to be, every non-conforming action of children does not deserve to be styled as rebellion. Know who your kids are, know what their natural likes and dislikes are, and embrace them for who they are. And don't try to force them into a mold that you, you desire for them to be. I have one more, uh, one more quote up here. This is from John Piper. And uh, John Piper says this, Anger is the cannibal emotion. It eats all the others until none is left. And it does this first in fathers, and then this constricted soul is passed on to the children. 
Anger is absorbed as the dominant emotion, and all the tender feelings die. Paul says, don't let that happen. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. The remedy is the gospel. And he quotes, as God in Christ forgave you. If you find yourself, and particularly to fathers, because I I do agree with with the quote there that oftentimes this starts at the head of the household, it starts with fathers. But if you find yourself lacking patience with your children, if you find yourself often angry, sometimes you can't even really describe it, or if somebody asks you, why are you angry? You don't even really know. But if you find yourselves frequently angry and lacking patience with your children, you don't have a parenting problem, okay? This isn't about you needing to be a better dad. This isn't about you needing to be a better mom. It's not a parenting problem. You have a gospel problem. And that's a gospel problem because you're not recognizing the fact that because you have been forgiven of so much by Jesus that you are able to forgive and love outside of your own abilities. It's a gospel problem. If you lack patience and you're always angry toward your children. So know that. And so Paul, who started with this, with this negative encouragement, now moves on to a positive exhortation. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So the, the verb here, if you go back and read this in the original Greek, the verb here is extrapho. Extrapho means to bring up. It literally means to, to nourish or to feed or to nurture. Uh, you might use that word if you're talking about uh, like, like nurturing a, a plant, trying to get it to grow, just how you care for that plant and how you pour into it and you give it time and energy and resources to see it come up. It's that same idea to nurture. Some other translations would translate it as being fondly cherished to be fondly cherished, or to rear your children tenderly. And so the encouragement there is cherish your children. Cherish your children. And I know because I've got little kids, and I've got another one on the way, and here's what I've learned just from having children. I've learned that, that days go by slowly and years go by quickly. And India, my oldest, is going to turn six in May. And I remember when she was born and when she was tiny, and the fact that she has grown up to be six years old and then it's happened, I mean, like that. Cherish your children. Because the reality is we don't, we don't have time. We don't have time with them like we think we do. I downloaded an app on my phone at one point that, that told me how many weekends I had with my children until they turn 18. And it's eye-opening. Cherish your children. Nurture them. Bring them up in the Lord. So your focus is on, is on that fact that we are to nurture our children, bringing them up in the Lord. And, and all that a father does to bring his children to maturity And all that we do is we seek our children to to be the best them that they can be and to be the best Christ follower that they can be. There should be a a provision and a care that assures that behind 
every discipline and behind every instruction that we give our kids, there has to be a great heart of love behind it. A great heart of love that kids recognize and they know that whatever happens, that this earthly father is working all things together for the good of his child. And by doing that, the love of God is displayed in his life. God's character is displayed. They have to know that you love them. And they have to know it. I don't, I don't ever, I, I try, I, I think about this. I, I try not to, I, I don't ever want someone to ask my children, hey, when's the last time your dad told, told you that he loved you? I don't, I don't ever want them to not have an answer for that. And they might say, you know, I don't know, but you know, the, the truth is, if they stop and think about it, I want them to be able to say, you, you know, now that I think about it, Dad, when he left for work this morning, like, he kissed me on the forehead and he told me he loves me. And last night, he tucked me into bed, and one of the last things he did before he left my room was he kissed me on the forehead and he told me he loves me. I don't ever want my kids to doubt that. I want them to know I want them to know dad loves you and everything that I do, any, any discipline, any instruction, know, even if you disagree with it, know that I love you, that it is done from a heart of love that desires the best for you. So here's a, Paul essentially gives an understanding you know, thousands of years before kind of modern psychology entered the realm that children are fragile. They need tenderness and security and love. And so there's some implications involved here for parents. And I want you to hear this. Parents, you should jealously guard that responsibility to raise your children up in the Lord. You should jealously guard it. And you can delegate some here and there. Delegate some to the church. If your kid is, is youth age, you know, I want them to be a part of the youth group. I want them involved in learning from Andrew. Uh, I want them to be learning from their peers. Um, delegate it to other families. Like Caitlin and I love spending time with your children. And so often many of you have dropped your kids off at our house while you needed to go do something. Like we, we love that. We love to spend time with your kids. Delegate some to other kids but never entirely surrender it. It is your own God-given task. Nobody can replace you. You cannot be replaced in your child's life. So if you're not taking this seriously, as far as nurturing and bringing your children up in Christ, I guarantee you no one else is taking it any more seriously than you. And you can try to drop them off and, and leave them at church for an hour a week, that's not nurturing and bringing up your children in Christ. Jealously guard it. Desire it. Desire it. And the second implication is that it takes time. It takes time to raise up in discipline and instruction. And those, those are two different things, two different words. And, and that word discipline, how it's used here, the, it, it, it is a... It's a, a, a reprimand, a, a discipline. When your child does something that they should not do and you discipline the child. That's, that's this word discipline here. 
So discipline or correction. Uh, There's a a pretty famous verse. I'm sure most of us are probably familiar with it, whether you grew up in church or not. Proverbs 13, 24. Anybody know what that says? Some of y'all, your grandparents probably read it to you. Whoever spares the rod hates the child, right? Spare the rod, hate the child. And that's it's it's likely been abused to a degree, um, honestly. Probably had some, some grandparents out there who, you know, were smacking you with a wooden spoon, saying, spare the rod, spoil the child. Sorry, child. Um, so it's, it's been abused in the past, but one thing that I think we have to recognize is that the, the opposite of wrong discipline is not the absence of discipline. The opposite of wrong discipline is not the absence of discipline, but right discipline right discipline. And the struggle with that is I can't really tell you what that is for your child. And and there's a reason for that because every child is different. If you have multiple children, you definitely recognize that because I've got three kids and they're they're all different. They're all unique. They're all their own and themselves. And what works as discipline for for one child may not work the same for the other. So an example, India and Grayson are my two oldest. um, And if one of them uh, does something wrong, I I can easily say, you know, what's a a famous, you know, discipline technique? Go to your room. Go to your room. And so... I'm going to get two different reactions and responses from each of those children. So Grayson is going to be upset and angry and mad, and he'll go to his room, but he's going to slam the door, and he's going to sit in his room, and he will cry for an hour until you go up there and, and rectify the situation. Um, India will go to her room, and she'll be, she'll be bothered in the moment that you're getting on to her, uh, but she'll go to her room, and you can go up there an hour later, and she will have pulled out every toy from her room, and uh, the room would be a mess, and um, she will have created in her imagination some imaginary world that she's just been playing in for the last hour. So she, her imagination and her ability to, to, to be in her room and, and to play by herself is far greater than Grayson's. And so th- those are different types of punishments for my children. And so I, I say that to say, uh, I, don't, I don't know what right discipline looks like for your family. It can look like a lot of different things. Um, I know that it's not abuse, but I also don't want to swing the pendulum too far the other way where, where we just don't know what discipline is, period. And so somewhere... For your family, there is, a, there is a happy medium of right discipline, and it's important that we figure that out. And so the opposite, the flip side of that is also true. The opposite of, of no discipline at all is not cruelty. It's balanced, controlled discipline, appropriate, timely, and consistent Whatever discipline looks like for your family, I think those three words should be a part of the description. Appropriate, timely, and consistent. And above all, we have to be clear about our motives in discipline. Clear about our motives and never discipline out of anger or frustration. And and this is just some some common sense advice, more so than than what we see from the Scripture here, but I've just experienced in my own life. Never discipline out of emotion, out of anger or frustration. I've got one more quote here. I don't don't know if we had this one on the screen or not. It's Martin Lloyd-Jones. 
He says, when you are disciplining a child, you should have first controlled yourself. What right have you to say to your child that he needs discipline when you obviously need it yourself? Self-control, the control of temper, is an essential prerequisite in the control of others. So we can't lose our self-control as we, dis- as we try to discipline self-control into our children. That doesn't work. So we're going to finish up this morning, and I want to quickly look at, and I know I said this isn't like a, a list of top eight things you can do to be a better parent, but I did want you to walk away this morning and have just a, just a few handles on, on a couple of things that, uh, that we can do or we can implement if we haven't already into our families. And they're, they're general, and so you can take them and apply them however you see fit. But just, uh, just three essentials for raising children. And this is adapted from uh, a guy named Richard Koken, who wrote um, a commentary on the book of Ephesians. And so it's adapted from that. And so the first one is this. Uh, the first essential for raising children is that it takes a village. It takes a village. So children will need spiritually healthy role models other than their parents for them to aspire to emulate. And so for some of us, that may be our families. For some of us, it may be our spiritual family or our church family. And so at Mercy Mercy Hill, we encourage you to be a part of a missional community. Be a part of a a people that you just kind of share life with, who know what your needs are, who know your family, and who know your children. As much as I love our Sunday gatherings, it's really difficult to get to know somebody here on a Sunday morning, because you've got maybe a few minutes, depending on what time you get here, before the service, maybe a few minutes after the service, and if you've got kids, you're going back to get your kids, and then you're taking care of your kids while you're also trying to get out the door. It's just, it's a busy time. So we encourage, at Mercy Hill, we encourage our families to be a part of a missional community so that you can be poured into, so you can experience life with another group of people who is outside of your own personal family. It takes a village. Again, don't completely try to delegate raising your children to the church, but be a part of something. Number two, it takes the gospel. It takes the gospel. So what that means for us as parents is we can't just bring our kids to church. We can't just play Caleb on the radio and expect that, uh, that our, our kids are going to come to know Christ one day. It takes the gospel. What that means is we have to open our mouths and speak the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word, into our children so that they hear it. Talk about the kindness of God's forgiving grace, not just about his laws and his do's and don'ts. So if all your children know about the Bible is that it's just this big list of things that you do and things that you don't do, then you've really missed something in it and how you communicate it to them because it's really a story of God's unfathomable grace towards his children. And if that's not the first thing your kids think of when they think of the Bible, then we've missed something. So it takes the gospel. It takes a village. It takes the gospel. Lastly, it takes God. It takes God. If we're going to raise our children up in Christ, listen, we have, to, we have to pray for our kids. We have to pray for them because we can preach our hearts out. You can sit around the dinner table every night and have an hour-long family devotion. You can share whatever passages of Scripture you want. You can sing whatever song. 
wrongs you want. Ultimately, salvation is an act of God's will in the heart of a person that transforms them from death to life. And I love you guys, but you can't do that. I can't do that. I can't make it happen in my kid's life. And so it takes God for that to happen. So we have to pray, pray, pray that God would use the discipline and instruction that we instill into our children in order to draw them into a relationship with himself. We have to pray that God would do that. And yes, surround them with every spiritual opportunity for God to work. So listen to Christian music in the car. Read God's word together. Spend time talking about God's goodness and his grace Pray that God would use those moments in your kids' lives to draw them close to yourself. Because it's not about just trying to make it happen. Only God can do that for your children in your children's lives. So pray for your kids. I'm going to invite the, the band to come back up on stage. And we're going we're gonna to wrap up this morning. And we're going to... As we typically do, we're going to finish by sharing uh, the Lord's Supper together. And just kind of how we share the, the Lord's Supper here, if you haven't been here before, we, we start down the middle aisle and we've got the, the bread and the juice up here up front. And um, you come down the middle aisle and as you tear off the bread, we're reminded of Christ's body that was broken for us. And as you dip it in the juice, we're reminded of his blood that was poured out for us. And you can make your way back to your seat. But before we do that this morning, we've been reminded from God's word about how the gospel impacts every aspect of our family. How the gospel impacts every aspect of our family. And so uh, before you come up this morning, I want you to take a, a few minutes and just just ponder and pray through these questions. We've got three questions that they should be on the screen. Three questions are this. How will you better honor your parents? How will you better honor your parents? Regardless of, of your age, if your parents are alive, how will you better honor your parents? How will you better raise your children or support others in doing so? How can we take the, the truths of the gospel and nurture and cherish our children as they grow up in our household. How will you do that? Or how will you support others in doing that? We talked about it taking a village. So some of you in the room, you don't have children. How can you support families who are around you in helping them raise their children in a way that is Christ-honoring and exalting? The last question, how does the gospel help you cope with the hard parts of parenting? If you're a parent in the room, you know it is hard. There are lots of times when I, I, I just I don't know what to do <laughs> with my kids. You know, if they're, they're pitching a fit or they're fighting about this or that or we have, we're having the same conversation that we've had 30 times and I, I just don't know what to do. It's in those moments that we have to allow the gospel to infiltrate into our lives and into our parenting and into our, into our conversations. How can we take those moments and point our kids back to Jesus? So I'm going to pray for us this morning, and then I want to encourage you guys just to take a moment and just think through some of these questions in your own seat before we come up and share communion together. God, we are grateful that your word is not silent on hard issues. But God, you, you have 
principles and truths that we've looked at today that, God, we can apply in our families. And God, as we talked about at the beginning of this sermon, God, all of us have just dysfunction in our families in varying ways and in different degrees, but God, we are dysfunctional. And God, we come before you recognizing that fact, and God, we recognize that, that we, we can't raise children on our own. God, we can't nurture our children up to godliness on our own. And God, we need you for that. God, we need to recognize your grace that's been poured out in our life so that we can pour grace out onto our children. And God, then we need to rely on your intervention in order to see them come to know you, in order to see them bloom into all that they can be as, as Christ followers. God, we recognize that this morning, and God, we also confess that we, we don't always do that. So God, I, I've been encouraged this morning to, to lean into you, God, more in my parenting and more in my family's life. God, I, I pray that each of us have as well. God, we pray that this, this time of communion that we're about to share has got a reminder of your grace towards us. God, may we remember. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.